Or, I was saved in a small group Bible study. Look at Dave Brown. I was saved at the country club. Or something like that. What do they mean by that? Save from what? Save for what? In what sense, saved? There's a time when the church employed salvation language frequently. But in mainline churches, that changed years ago. And more recently, it's been changing in evangelical circles too. Salvation talks out of fashion. No one wants to say these days, I'm saved. It seems self-focused. And maybe a little politically incorrect too. Because if I'm saved, am I saying that you're not? Isn't everybody? Shouldn't we all be? In the Gospel of Luke, in which plans are now, I set out a schedule, but I always break it. But I'm going to try not to. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for the next three months. The Gospel of Luke is full of salvation talk. Luke uses the noun for salvation far more frequently than any of the other Gospel writers. Taken together with the verb form, he uses salvation words 16 times, just the word salvation. Or the word saved 16 times in the gospel. And another 15 times in the second volume of his history, which we know as the Acts of the Apostles. Luke, as we're going to see over the next few months, is deeply aware of the history of salvation, of the extent of salvation, of the means of salvation, and the consequences of salvation. He understood salvation as our most pressing need and as God's great concern. That might be difficult for us to grasp because in our time, the breadth and richness of salvation has been drastically understated. Breadth and richness don't sell in our culture. In a culture that produces light beer, light soft drinks, light computer software, light radio stations, even hair colors light and easy. Do you know you can buy light dog food, light cat food? And if you're worried about your calorie intake, I learned you can buy spam light, too. I'm not going to, but you could do it if you wanted to. We want to reduce the calories, reduce the complexity, reduce the effort of just about everything, including salvation. And so we end up with something like salvation light. What's salvation light? It's what's left of the rich biblical teaching about God's salvation after we've cut everything away that isn't about me. When that's been done, the only thing left is a free trip to heaven when I die. That's salvation light. I once urged a young man to give his life to God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have any intellectual uh, barriers to doing that. But what he told me was, I've got plenty of time for that. And I want to do a lot of living in the interim. He said to me, when I get old, like 70, then I'll get religion. Then I'll get saved. Where did he get the idea that he could put God off for 50 years? What made him think that salvation was unnecessary until he arrived at death's door? Sadly, I think his reasoning was based on the salvation light teaching he'd heard from church people. In his mind, and I think in most people's minds, salvation remains inoperative and irrelevant until one dies. 
And then it becomes a boarding pass to be produced at death so that you can fly to the heavenly skies. That idea of salvation would have been totally incomprehensible to St. Luke. And for that matter, to St. Paul and St. Peter and all the early church. For them, salvation was rooted in God's actions in history. It bloomed at the coming of Christ and will be brought to fruition when he comes again. Those people understood that while God's great work of salvation is unfolding all around us, salvation is not our personal property. Individuals may and must be saved, but that doesn't mean salvation is individualistic. In recent years, our nation has gone through a spiritual earthquake. But reclining in her, her lazy boy, the church has hardly noticed. We're in the midst of a mass exodus from the church and from Christianity. Perhaps ours is the time of the great apostasy, which Paul referred to in First Timothy chapter 4. Do you know that in the last census, the number of people claiming no religious affiliation was the fastest going, growing religious category? And did you know that over one-third of the people who now call themselves irreligious are under the age of 30? That does not bode well for the future of America. Now, I'm sure there are a variety of reasons for this apostasy. But one of the main ones is this. The salvation offered by the church seems to a growing number of people to have nothing to do with real life. It seems completely irrelevant but that's because they don't understand salvation. They think of it as a boarding pass for a trip that they don't want to take to a place they don't want to see. And I'm afraid that even in the church, many people share that same misunderstanding. And so we come to Luke's Gospel, and we'll be here for the next three months, where the chief character, the chief actor in the story is God. The hero of the story is Jesus and the theme of the story is salvation. A salvation that is rooted in God's past promises, delivered by God's own Son, and will be consummated upon His return. We're going to look at how Luke makes those three points in just a moment. But before we do, I need to tell you that you will never understand salvation. This is this kind of preface, but it's important. You will never understand salvation until you grasp the fact that life here is not what it's supposed to be. We are not the way we're supposed to be. Something has gone dreadfully wrong. We're reminded of that every time some madman opens fire in a crowded theater or an elementary school. And then we have plenty of impassioned speeches usually for or against gun control. And when all that's over, we, turn, we return to normal life and forget that normal life is not normal. Something has gone wrong. Wrong with the world, but also wrong with you. Do you feel it? And with me, and with our parents, and with our children, and everyone and everything we've known. And his excellent book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Uh, the professor from Calvin College, Cornelius Plantinga, 
recounts a story right in the first chapter from a movie, a scene in a movie in which an attorney tries to bypass a traffic jam in the city only to find himself lost in the worst parts of town where his car breaks down. Of course it breaks down. He calls for a tow truck, but while he waits, he's surrounded by five gang members who threaten him. And just as they're about to do him harm, the tow truck driver shows up. He takes the leader of the gang of those five aside, and he gives him a down-to-earth theological summary of the Christian doctrine of the fall. He doesn't know that's what he's doing, but that's what he does nonetheless. This is what he says. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait in his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. That is the doctrine of the fall in a nutshell. And that's why we need salvation. Every day, all the time, we are out of harmony with God, which means we're out of harmony with reality. We are constantly off balance. Have you noticed? As both prophet and apostle tell us, we don't know the way of peace. And what's worse, most of us don't even desire it. We don't want peace. We want distraction. It's not just madmen who shoot children that are out of harmony with God. It's also men who hit their wives or ignore them. And wives who are unfaithful to their husbands. And children who are ashamed of their parents. People with plenty who despise those who have nothing. It's kids on the playground who make fun of the child who talks differently. And adults in the factory who are filled with malice towards the co-worker whose skin is a different color. It's boredom, fear, greed, anger, envy. It's what Walker Percy describes as the self being stuffed with itself. It's disease and it's dis-ease. Bitterness, unforgiveness, anxiety, pretentiousness, secrecy, and on and on. The world ain't supposed to be like this. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. We're not the way we're supposed to be. And we have no idea what to do to fix it. But God is doing something that will change everything. That will change us. The Bible calls that something salvation. It's no coincidence that the Greek word translated saved can also be rendered and is rendered healed. God plans to heal the cosmos and to heal us, to restore balance, to make things right. In other words, he plans to save us. Now, I mentioned that Luke represents salvation as rooted in God's past promises. And that's true of all the other New Testament writers as well. Sometimes we get the idea that Jesus brought something different. That with Jesus, God threw out the failed past and started all together new. But Luke, like the other biblical writers, didn't see it that way. The coming of Jesus was not something unexpected, but something promised. It was not a do-over, but a continuation, a part of God's great work of salvation. Luke brings this out in a variety of ways. For example, chapter 1, the angel tells Mary in the Annunciation 
that her son will sit on the throne of David, which she understood to mean, as any Jew would, that he was to be the fulfillment of the long standing promise of God to rescue his people by sending a deliverer and a king, the one they called Messiah. She rejoiced that the birth of her son would be the fulfillment of ancient promises because God remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Also in Luke chapter 1, when John the Baptist was born, Luke tells us that his father, Zechariah, praised the the Lord with these words. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, uh, spend some time there today or in the next few days. There are numerous insights to be gained from Zechariah's song of praise. And usually we skip over it because we're uncomfortable with it. It's so Jewish. We don't know what to do with it. So spend a little time there. Zechariah explicitly mentions salvation twice in his song. But when he elaborates on what it looks like, he says nothing about going to heaven when we die. Instead, he describes salvation as freedom to serve God without fear and in holiness. And notice that he takes for granted that salvation's roots run deep all the way back to God's covenantal oath to Abraham. Salvation, Zechariah understood, was God's plan all along. He planned it and promised it through the prophets long ago, and he did so again and again. And you'll find that idea cropping up in Luke over and over. There are 30 Old Testament citations or allusions in this gospel. Jesus is seen as the Savior to whom the prophecies made in the Psalms and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Malachi all point. Do you remember the post-resurrection story that only Luke shares? Two disciples are walking back to their hometown from Jerusalem. It's about a seven-mile walk. And they're walking back right after Jesus has been executed. They're stunned. They're in shock. The one they believed to be God's Messiah, they knew he was God's Messiah, had been killed, and all their hopes died with him. It was true that some disciples, women, said that they had seen him alive, but the Emmaus Road walkers didn't believe that. They thought those women were delirious. In fact, the word that Luke uses And their description of them is a word that was used to describe the delirium caused by a fever. They assumed that grief had caused them to see Jesus. As they walked along, Jesus fell in with them and began asking them questions, but they didn't recognize him. And Jesus listened. All the while, they talked about their disappointment and about their confusion. And then when they were done, he responded. And this is what Luke says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, the story of salvation didn't start with the birth of Jesus. It started with the fall of man. In fact, it started before that. Zechariah realized that he was living in a story 
that began in the deep past and would continue on into the future. He was part of something big. He didn't own salvation. It wasn't his personal properties. It was God's. The God who created heaven and earth, called Abraham, sent prophets, raised up kings, held nations in his hands, had promised to fix the mess that had happened on his watch. Everything happens on his watch. And he's going to make it right. That's salvation. Zechariah understood something we might miss. Salvation was happening right now. It was unfolding before his eyes. Zechariah knew about the plan of salvation, but he knew that it was bigger than him. It was bigger than getting into heaven when he died. He didn't own it. But by the grace of God, he was part of it. And that filled him with joy. This is what happens when salvation is released from its moorings in the, in the past and the promises of God and from the future in the revelation of Christ. This is what happens and has happened in contemporary Christianity. You get people who, as Dallas Willard once put it, believe in Jesus but do not actually believe in God. People with the faith that they suppose will get them into heaven when they die, but that can't sustain them on earth while they live. If one of salvation's mooring lines is made fast to God's past promises, the other reaches ahead to the return of Christ and all that accompanies it, to judgment, to restoration, and to joy. Luke sees us moving, inexorably moving, toward that day. In Luke, Jesus warns that that day will surprise the unprepared. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Salvation rooted to the past reaching to the future. The editor of Preaching Today, Craig Brian Larson, tells a story about his wife when she went to work for a bank. This is uh, just before they got married, while they were dating. She went to work for this bank as a temp and was surprised by how lax and unprofessional the workers were, and even their supervisor. The supervisor was a generation older than the rest of the workers would take long coffee breaks and the younger employees would sit on her desk and chat and gossip. But there was one employee at the bank that the boss and the other team members treated rudely and shunned. She was a woman in her mid-30s had just come on staff the week before Larson showed up. If she walked up and tried to join in a conversation, the conversation ended. The others, including the supervisor, made jokes about her behind her back they laughed at the way she dressed. They rolled their eyes and made faces whenever she was nearby. So this went on for a couple of weeks. And then Larson's wife arrived at work and found everything was different. There's no gossiping, no long coffee breaks. The workers were all working. The previous supervisor was gone. She'd been fired. The team addressed their new supervisor with respect. There was even fear in their eyes. Guess who the new supervisor was? 
the same 30-something woman that had previously been shunned and mocked. Turned out that she had been hired to be the new supervisor from day one, but that the bank had concealed her identity so she could observe the work style of the team. Larson says, in some ways, the situation resembles the coming of Christ. In his first coming, Jesus revealed his identity, his glory to those who believed, but to those who didn't believe, they were unable to recognize him. Following his resurrection, Christ ascended to the right hand of God where he rules all things, and one day he will come again to permanently establish his kingdom on earth. When that happens, there'll be no mistaking who's in charge. In the end, God's salvation will save the world from the people who refuse to be saved from themselves and from their sins. There'll be nothing subjective about discovering who those people are. God's judgment will simply confirm that we are the persons we have chosen all along to be. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, that will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen. Without this future aspect of salvation, of deliverance and judgment, salvation would miscarry and leave us in despair. We need that future of judgment and deliverance. Now, I mentioned at the outset that Luke pictures salvation is rooted in the past promises of God, delivered in His Son, in reaching to the return of Christ. We looked, albeit very briefly, at salvation's past promises and, and its future revelation. But what about its current delivery? Or to be more precise, its current deliverer. See, this is the heart of Luke's gospel. Salvation, with its past promises and its future revelation, came wrapped up in a person. It even came wrapped in swaddling. That's what Luke will not allow us to miss. He tells us from the very outset that this person is named Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh, the Lord, saves. Luke tells us that on the night of his birth, angels announced today in the town of David, a Savior is born to you. In a particularly beautiful passage, Luke tells of an old and godly man who lived in Jerusalem. This is chapter 2 and verses 25 to 30. Now, there was an, a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. God allowed Simeon to look salvation in the eye and enabled him to recognize it. Salvation is a person. Jesus Christ. Salvation is not having certain things done to you. Whether being circumcised or being baptized. Or... Salvation is not doing certain things, whether celebrating the festivals or observing Sabbath or going forward during an altar call or taking communion. 
If our hope of salvation is in any of these things, it's misplaced. Trusting in an experience, however good and real it is, and I'll go further, however biblical it is, will not save you. Don't trust in your baptism, your confirmation, your altar call experience, your second work of grace, your knowledge of the Bible, or in the way you keep the rules. Be grateful for such things, but trust a person. Trust Jesus. Let me say one last thing. In Zechariah's Song of Praise, he speaks of giving people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now, spend some time reflecting on that one when you have the chance. But for now, notice that forgiveness of sins and salvation are not synonymous. Salvation is more than forgiveness. But forgiveness gives, it opens the door to the knowledge of salvation. Salvation is more than forgiveness. But you can't bypass forgiveness on the way to salvation. You can't take an alternate route. You can't go by the religious rituals bypass or the good deeds highway and still get there. Forgiveness, being released from our guilt, received by our Father, reconciled to our God, enables us to experience all the riches of God's salvation. And it's offered to anyone who, trusting the Savior, confesses his sins to God. That Savior is Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I commend you to him. Let's pray. God, as we go through this summer of looking in this gospel, I ask you to reveal to us your Son and our great salvation until we're amazed at what you've done for us and our hearts are encouraged and we're bold and joyful. Lord, we need to hear from you. Come and meet us in this gospel week after week by your Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen.